So the word is um, John 1, verses 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is the reading of the word. Friends, with our brothers and sisters around the world and through the centuries, let's declare our faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Friends, let's pray together before we jump into today's message. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the truth of your coming and living among us. Uh, teaching us how to live, dying on the cross for our sins, and raising again to new life. Lord, we thank you for the assurance we have of our faith and our salvation. We pray today that you would encourage us, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would open our hearts, Lord, to receive from you, and you would fill us a fresh Holy Spirit with your boldness uh, to witness to those around us who do not know you, to do so with love and with grace. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So there's this illustration that I've heard a few times, and it fits really well with today's tough question. The illustration goes like this. There is a, a room full of blindfolded people, and they're all reaching out to feel the various parts of something in the room. And one feels something long and kind of leathery and says, oh, this thing's a snake. And the other one, uh, somewhere else in the room, kind of pipes up and he's feeling something. He goes, no, no, this thing that we're all looking at, it's a cow. And another one feels another piece and goes, no, it's a beaver. And another one feels something else and goes, no, it's a, it's a monkey. And, and all of them uh, are, are feeling various parts of this creature in the room. They can't figure out what it is. Each one is wrong, but each one, the illustration goes, is partially true. And the illustration goes on to say that it's an elephant in the room. 
And each of these people is blindfolded or they're in the dark and they're all reaching out and feeling various parts of this elephant and each is saying what they feel. One is feeling the trunk of the elephant, says it's a snake. Another's feeling the side of the elephant, says, oh, it's a cow or something. Another one's feeling the ear and thinks, oh, it's like a beaver or a bat or something leathery, right? And the idea is, is this. It's used to make the following claim, that all the various people in the room, the blindfolded people, reaching out to feel the elephant, they all represent the major world religions or systems of belief. You've got Christianity and Judaism and Buddhism um, and Sikhism and Islam and Hinduism, and each is reaching out to the truth, but each only knows a piece of the truth. Each is right in the little bit that they see, but they don't see the whole picture. And that illustration is used to make the point or reinforce the idea that there is truth in all of these various religions um, and that all of them will eventually lead or point to the truth, to God. Uh, but, the, but they don't have the full truth in and of themselves. Now there's a problem with that illustration. It assumes that we can see that this thing is an elephant. It assumes, as the one reading this or viewing the illustration that we are outside of the the various people trying to reach the elephant it assures us we can have some sort of an objective view without a blindfold and from this position we can look down on the others and know that they've got it wrong we know that they may feel a bit of the truth of it but that overall they don't have the full picture and when atheists use this illustration they assume that they are the ones from the outside looking at the blindfolded folks struggling to figure out the creature. The assumed implication is that the pluralist or the secularist is the one, the one who's outside of religious inclination, is the one who's the objective observer and sees the, the folly of these blindfolded folks. It's the pluralist who's saying here, all are blind except for me. I really see what's going on. But why should that assumption be? Why should that remain true? Why isn't it that the atheist is the one with a blindfold? What's to say that some of these blindfolded ones can't remove their blindfold and see what is true? Why can't we uh, take our blindfolds off and call the elephant an elephant? Or better yet, what's to stop the elephant himself from removing my blindfold and revealing himself to me. The perspective of the analogy is that we as the observer outside of this can see the truth. So it makes the claim that truth is knowable. We can know this. We can find out. And we can give evidence for what we believe. And yet this analogy is used to support the phrase, well, all roads lead to God while it itself tells us that truth is actually exclusive. There is a right and a wrong, and in this way it's almost inherently self-defeating. But that said, the sentiment, the tough question we're exploring today is just this. Don't all roads lead to God? Or put another way, don't all religions have some of the truth? Isn't We're all reaching for the truth of reality, the truth of what to believe about ultimate things, and we're reaching out and we feel the elephant, but we don't have the full picture. Isn't it true that some of the religions have some of it and some have others? Um, and, and that together we can kind of find the ultimate truth.
And that view starts with a seemingly kind of good intention, doesn't it? It starts with the idea that we want to respect the various roads. Some will go on to say we want to respect them because we, we believe that all the religions basically teach the same thing. And maybe you've heard that. Don't they all teach us to love each other, for instance? Well, in terms of having uh, some sort of moral code to live by, that is, in a sense is, is true. Many do have some sort of moral code for life. And many do say something like treat others as you should be treated. But not all do. And here's, here's the thing. That is a, a cursory similarity, a shallow similarity at best. Because when we actually examine these different roads, these different world views, we discover that they fundamentally do not teach the same thing. And moreover, they actually are mutually exclusive. If you hold on to one, you can't actually hold to the other. This is simply the way truth works in our reality. So saying all religions teach the same or they all lead to God is actually rather ignorant to say so is actually to disrespect all the roads because you're not actually taking any of them very seriously. For example, Buddhism does not teach about being with God, a personal being. It teaches that you don't have a self and we work off our karma on a cycle of death and rebirth and then we are extinguished. Hinduism teaches that we are all the God, we are all the divine. In Islam, there is a God who's out there, who is not me, but the exchange I have with him is more of a, as a master and a servant. And when I die and go to heaven, it's a, a paradise that's been made for me, but God is not there. Christianity says something very different, that we are made for relationship with God. God is a personal, relational being, and he's created us for communion and for life with him. And we've turned away from that and, and chosen other uh, passions and other paths because of our human free will. But God himself has come to rescue us from our evil and reconcile us through Jesus Christ. So saying all religions are essentially the same is actually ends up being a bit um, it starts as being trying to be respectful, as in, you know, don't force your system of belief on me. But it actually disrespects the various paths or roads that one might consider. It doesn't actually properly uh, explore what those various paths actually propose. I should respect the Muslim or the Hindu enough to say, we don't believe the same thing. It's actually disrespectful to assume that we do. So the idea that all religions are the same is simply invalid. And for another voice on this topic, I'd like us to watch this video together from Ravi Zacharias on the question, aren't all religions the same? And isn't Jesus just one of many prophets? Let's watch this together. A student asked, could you please expand mm -hmm. on how Jesus might respond to the mm -hmm. Baha'i faith, that all religions are one, and that Jesus is just one of many prophets? 
You know, coming from the East, John, we just plague each other with questions. I mean, uh, that's the way it is. If you do an open forum in Delhi, for example, or in Mumbai or in Chennai, you will find you'll never get out of there. They have very many questions. It's a questioning culture, and it's also true in the Middle East, and that's why I think religious ideas are so central to their ethos and their pathos, and they feel it so passionately. So the first thing I want to say is to the listener, I understand how you feel about these issues for two reasons. Number one, it's a genuine question. Number two, it's connected to family and to ancestral beliefs. And so when they raise questions on exclusivity, for example, or on the Baha'i faith, which is syncretistic, I know, I know why they're asking this. But the Baha'i faith, you know, coming up in the mid-1800s, little after the 1850s and so on, uh, that particular faith by the Islamic worldview is treated as heretical and the people are persecuted, uh, unfortunately so. Their intention was noble to try to bring everybody together. So if you go, for example, to the Baha'i temple in Delhi, or where I'm sure you've even been there, massive edifices and so on, there's a fundamental problem with that. All religions simply cannot be true. So I've heard people say religions are all fundamentally the same and only superficially different. Skeptics normally say that. It's the opposite. They are fundamentally different and at best only superficially similar. Islam is not the same as Hinduism. Christianity is not the same as Islam. We need to be cordially able to interact on these issues without anathematizing each other, but holding on to truth. Truth is ultimately incontrovertible. Why can't all religions be true? Because the law of non-contradiction applies to reality. Two contradictory statements, meaning opposite things, cannot both be correct at the same time. Exclusivity is a reality in truth because truth is primarily a property of propositions. We see this in a courtroom. Were you in the room when this took place? The answer is either yes or no. You can say one foot in there, one foot out of there. You can play word games, but the questioner is looking for truth. Truth, by definition, is exclusive. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes unto the Father except through me, it's an audacious claim. It's a dramatic claim. It's, a, it's an absolute claim. The question is, can it be sustained by his life teaching and so on? That's what we have to ask. All religions simply cannot be the same. Gautama Buddha was born a Hindu. And he renounced two of the fundamental doctrines of Hinduism. He did not accept the authority of the Vedas and he did not accept the caste system. That's why even in recent times there were people coming in saying in a move from A over to B where we don't have a caste system. But those two beliefs he renounced and that's when his four noble truths and his eightfold path came into being. Uh, Islam is not the same as Sikhism. Sikhism is not the same as Hinduism. They are there are doctrines and claims that are made that are exclusive to every faith. Every faith has its exclusivity. Even Baha'ism, which claims to be syncretistic, actually excludes the exclusivists and says you can't be an exclusivist and be a follower of the Baha'i faith at the same time. It's the nature of what truth is. So rather than getting upset at an exclusive claim, reason tells me, let me examine these claims and see if they stand the test of truth. That's what we need to do. 
I love how he says, rather than getting upset at an exclusive claim, reason tells me, let me examine these claims and see if they stand the test of truth. So as Christians, we can ask, well, how do we know Christianity is true? How do we know this is the true one, that there is a God that exists? Well, we went over uh, that question a couple weeks ago. We looked at the various arguments for God's existence. We may say, why the Christian God exactly? And that all goes back to Jesus. Jesus claimed he was God. He claimed he was taking away the sins of the world. We know that he died. As Christians, we trust the evidence that he rose again. And here's the clincher. It actually all comes down to the historical truth of the resurrection. We talked about that a lot at Easter. If he did not rise again, he was false in what he said. He was crazy with what he said. But if he did really rise again, then all the claims he made were true. It's all true. And here's the thing about Jesus. It's either true or false. This isn't a matter of personal opinion. It either is true or isn't. How do we know the resurrection is true? And again, very quickly, we've talked about this, I think, at Easter. We know the surety of his crucifixion. The Romans knew how to take you out, right? We have assurance from the historical records that many saw the risen Jesus after his death. We have the conversion of skeptics like Paul and James. It cost them everything to follow him. Why would they do this unless they knew it was true? It cost them their reputation, their status, um, and eventually their lives, right? They say, we saw him with our own eyes. Why would they die for this, for this lie, if they were making it up? It doesn't make sense. We know there's an empty tomb. We know there's no good reason for the early disciples to make this up and just to start a religion. They're, they're Jews and they don't worship a person. And yet we have Thomas upon seeing the risen Christ saying, my Lord and my God to a human being. That is absolutely incredible. It's one of the most incredible passages of scripture for a Jew to say that, my Lord and my God. And we have this embarrassing testimony of the women being the first ones to see uh, the resurrected Jesus, to see the empty tomb. We have that retained. If you were trying to start this up for yourselves, you wouldn't paint the leader of this new group in a bad light. But Peter gets an embarrassing amount of poor stories, his denial, his disbelief. And yet we have... Um, this this record of the women being the first apostles to the apostles which helps to prove that these documents are historically accurate and true we know christianity is true because we know <clears throat> jesus is who he said he was and we know jesus really did rise again from the dead c.s lewis put it this way i love this quote this is from mere christianity he said either this man was and is the son of god or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a good human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. And he did not intend to. This next video uh, is great. This is from uh, Dr. William Lane Craig's uh, reasonablefaith.org. And it answers again this question, how can Jesus be the only way? Let's watch together.
In AD 203, the Roman government arrested a 22-year-old woman, a Christian named Perpetua. The problem wasn't so much that she worshipped Jesus. Her crime was that she worshipped only Jesus. She refused to worship any other gods. As a result, she was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. This dangerous idea that Christ alone provides the way to God is called Christian particularism, and it is as scandalous today as it was 2,000 years ago. Religious pluralism, on the other hand, is the view that all the world's religions are equally valid, and Christ is just one of many ways. Some religious pluralists say all the world's religions teach basically the same thing, so they are all true. But this is clearly mistaken. The major religions often contradict each other. For example, compare Islam and Buddhism. Muslims believe there is a personal God who created the world. Man is sinful and will spend eternity in heaven or hell. And salvation is attained by faith and performing good works. But Buddhists deny all of this. They believe that ultimate reality is not a person. The world was not created. Man is not sinful. Man is not an enduring self. And the goal of life is not salvation. It's annihilation. Because these two worldviews contradict each other, they can't both be true. In fact, every major world religion contradicts every other one. So they can't possibly all be true. So other religious pluralists will say, all the world's religions are false. They're equally valid, but equally false, cultural expressions of mankind's search for truth. But why think that this is true? Why couldn't one particular religion be true? When you examine the arguments for religious pluralism, you find that some of them are textbook examples of logical fallacies. For example, anyone who believes that Christianity is true and every other view is wrong is arrogant. Therefore, Christianity is false. This is a logical fallacy called argument ad hominem, trying to show someone's view is false by attacking his personal character. This is a logical fallacy because the truth of a view is independent of the character of the person who holds it. For example, if an arrogant person discovered the cure for cancer, the fact that he's egotistical would not mean his claim was false and you wouldn't refuse treatment just because he was conceited. Moreover, this objection is a double-edged sword, for the pluralist also believes that his view is true and that everyone else is wrong. Therefore, if you're arrogant for holding to a view which many others disagree with, then the pluralist himself would be guilty of arrogance. Here is another pluralist argument. Religions are culturally relative. If you had been born in Pakistan, you'd likely be a Muslim. But if you'd been born in Ireland, you'd probably be a Catholic. Because religious beliefs are culturally relative, they are not objectively true. This is an example of the genetic fallacy, trying to invalidate a view by showing how a person came to hold the view. This is a fallacy because the truth of a view is independent of how a person came to believe it. For example, if you had been born in ancient Greece, you would have believed that the sun goes around the earth. Does that make your current belief that the earth goes around the sun false or unjustified? No, 
Furthermore, this objection is also a double-edged sword. For if the religious pluralist had been born in Pakistan or Ireland, he'd likely have been a religious particularist. So his belief in religious pluralism is just the result of his being born in contemporary Western society and therefore is not objectively true. Getting these fallacious objections out of the way helps to reveal a more serious objection to Christian particularism. The problem of those who have never heard of Christ. If Jesus is the only way to God, then what is the fate of those who never hear of Jesus? Is there no hope for them? The answer is, there is hope for those who've never heard. The Bible says that God loves all people and wants everyone to come to him and find eternal life. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Our next video explains how God has provided a way for everyone. I love that. 1 Timothy 2, 4 and 5. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. All roads don't lead to God. They aren't all the same. But we have convincing evidence and ourselves know the truth of the risen Jesus Christ. And to show that Christianity is true, that Jesus is alive today, and each of us are called into a new life with him. And friends, that is going to bring us <clears throat> actually to the end of our series. Uh, for now, we've covered a lot of, of big topics, uh, tough questions in this series. Why believe in God? Why does God allow suffering and evil? How can we trust the Bible? Why do Christians seem hypocritical or judgmental? How do I live with that? And, and this last one, don't all roads lead to God or aren't all religions the same? These are big topics. There's so much more we could have said. There's lots of books that have been written about this. Um, but we wanted to at least hit some of these and, and at least start to scratch the surface and give some resources of course, you can follow up with any of these speakers or authors that we've used to help uh, flesh out our conversations together. I had wanted to do uh, a few more topics, including the sanctity of human life, um, but I was really thinking about it, and I think it would be better for us to wait to tackle some of those topics until we're back together. I just realized right now, if you're a family at home, you're, you and your kids, parents, uh, you're watching this together, probably around a computer, the TV or something. And, you know, what I say is being heard by both parents, by both the adults and the, and the young ones. And some of these topics, particularly if we're going to talk about um, euthanasia or abortion, really we start venturing into PG-13 territory pretty quick. And so uh, I thought, let's, let's wait till it's an opportunity where our children are downstairs in Sunday school and the, the adults and the teens uh, you know, together upstairs, we can start to talk about maybe some of these more difficult, not more difficult, but particularly sensitive topics. The other reason to wait is I think some of these topics um, that we were going to look at, particularly the sanctity of human life, but others as well, 
require or would be best suited for a time of ministry and prayer afterwards. And so, you know, it's one thing for us to talk about some of the information, some of the arguments for God over a video series. But for some of these other ones, I think it really requires some face-to-face ministry time to really care for each other well, to disciple each other well. And so we're going to wait to maybe cover some of those topics down the road. We'll maybe do another four-week uh, series on some more tough questions. There's, there's of course, many more out there, but that was kind of my pastoral heart for us. I thought these are important issues to talk about culturally with what's going on in Canada, um, but we need to be sensitive and aware of our context and our audience. Um, so so this is going to be it for, for now. We did five weeks. We're going to wrap up the series for now. And I'm actually really excited because next week we are going to be starting uh, a longer series on the book of Exodus. And it has just, it's such a, a compelling book. It's such a rich book. It's so fun. There's a lot that goes on. Um, this is where we first hear the words redemption and salvation. Um, what God does is amazing. Moses as a character study is really intriguing. As a leader is really intriguing. Um, the whole dynamic between Egypt and God and Pharaoh and Moses is really fascinating. But there's so much that relates to our lives. And so I'm really excited to dive into Exodus together next week. Um, but I wanted to end with these thoughts as we're concluding this series and, and especially talking about the exclusivity of Christianity, why we believe this is true. Um, you know, we've been talking about these tough questions and along the way we've been talking about sharing our faith with people. You know, how do I communicate some of this stuff to my friends? Of course, like I said, there's, there's more we could say. But I wanted to mention this. I think most of our friends or relatives who aren't Christians... Um, for some, giving compelling reason and evidence is very helpful. I think it's good for us to be able to give a reason for why we believe what we believe. Um, and as much as it's, it's good to have reasons for that, for many, um, those aren't necessarily going to make a difference because at the end of the day, this is a heart issue. Our last video is going to talk about this a little more. But I just want to encourage us, you know, as Christians, our call is to love people well, to be a good neighbor. So to listen to our friends when they are struggling, to be present to them, to care well for them. Um, and so let's, let's do that. Let's shine the light of Jesus. And then when the questions do start to come, we can start to broach some of those topics together. But don't let, you know, don't don't let, um, you may not be able to remember some of this stuff if a person's asking you, why does God allow suffering? But you at least have a bit of a jumping off point or you know where to go looking. And, but in the meantime, what you can do is love that person well through the, the ordeal or the tragedy that they're experiencing in their lives. You can shine the light of Jesus by being present to them. And that's, that's huge. That's the big thing. That's the, the witness and the discipleship that we are called to. I wanted to end with this with this last video because it kind of broaches this subject a bit. Um, it's it's about when people say, "Listen, I see what you believe, but I just don't, I just don't accept it. I just don't want to accept it." The audio quality isn't great, but I encourage you to listen along to this last video. This is from Dr. Frank Turek, uh, Q and A with him. He's a Christian apologist. Uh, so let's watch this last video together. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I, I think my struggle a lot of times is you can go through the logic as you've very eloquently demonstrated, and you can you can it's it's really undeniable when it comes down to it. 
But what I run into is that people, you reach a point with them, people of different worldviews, they say, okay, yes, I understand your point. Yes, I understand your logic, but I don't subscribe, you know, or I choose not to believe that. And so I guess my question is, how do you deal with that? How do you, how do you go from them just saying, okay, I acknowledge that you're true and you're right and logical in this, but I choose not to accept that? Well, everyone has the free will to assent or not to assent to what's, what's out there. And God gives us the free will to do so. But here's a question I ask everybody who's not a Christian. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I ask that of atheists. If there's any atheists here tonight, I hope you come up and ask a question because I'll ask you this question. I'm just giving you a warning up front just so you can be ready for it. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I've had atheists stand at that microphone, including last night. Um, I asked the question. And sometimes atheists will say, no, I wouldn't become a Christian if it were true. How's that reasonable? How's that rational? It's not. The problem isn't here. The problem's here. They don't want it to be true. They don't want there to be a God because they want to be God of their own lives. And God gets in the way. See, we're not on a truth quest, many of us. We're on a happiness quest. And we're going to believe whatever, they think, whatever we think is going to make us happy. And here's the problem. You can make yourself happy over the short term by doing a lot of fun things. But over the long term, it's a disaster. And everyone in here who's over 40 knows what I'm talking about it because many of us have tried it ourselves, right? Gee, that didn't work out. So ask the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If they hesitate or say no, you realize the problem isn't intellectual. The problem is volitional. It's not a problem of the head, it's a problem of the heart. In fact, for you Christians in here, let me just ask one question, Mark, of the whole audience, if I can, for a second. For those of you who are Christians, just for the Christians, I want to ask you guys this question. I want you to think of somebody you know who's not a Christian, whom you'd like to be a Christian. Could be a, re a friend, relative, whoever it is, right? Everyone got somebody? Okay, here's my question about the person you're thinking of right now. Is the person you're thinking of right now on a relentless pursuit of truth? They want to know if Christianity is true. Or... Are they apathetic or maybe even hostile? How many say the person I'm thinking of are on a the person I'm thinking of is on a relentless pursuit of truth? How many? Crickets. How many people say the person I'm thinking of is apathetic or hostile? Yeah, everybody else. It is the same everywhere I go. It's 100 to 0 or 99 to 1. People don't want it to be true. So you've got to ask them that question and see where they go with it. And, and then I guess your response to that would be, you know, just pray and, and, and pray, pray for them. their heart. Yeah, pray, love them, and maybe at some point, after you planted enough seeds... And, and sometimes it's because some dramatic event occurs in their life that your phone will ring and that person will be on the other end. Why? Because when something goes wrong, they're not going to call their atheist friend who's going to say, this stuff happens. There's no re rhyme or reason to it. They're going to call you. When the student's ready, the teacher will appear. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. So, guys, we pray with our friends. We love them well. We listen to them well. We live out the truth with grace. And when the moment comes, as the Spirit is drawing them to the Father and their hearts are opened, we can be uh, helping them uh, be pointed to Jesus, be the one who can help uh, lead and guide them to the cross. And so friends, that's my heart for us as we head into this week, that we would not just consider these questions well, but seek to live out the truth, especially for those around us who don't know the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray together. 
Friends, would you join me in prayer together? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your great love for us. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you came to this earth to rescue us, to redeem us. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the gift of your Holy Spirit, your presence with us, to embolden us, to make us alive in you, to grow us in the fruit of your Spirit, Lord, to change our hearts, to form us, to shape us. And our prayer as your disciples is to grow more and more like you, Lord. I pray right now for those that are listening, for our families and friends both here in Dryden and around the world that are watching this video, Lord, and being part of the service that you would have your hand upon each one. Bless them, Lord. Uh, Jesus, we pray for those in our lives uh, who are suffering, who are hurting. And Lord, we just pray that you would come, that you would reconcile marriages, that you would bring healing to families. Lord, that you would set the captive free and restore uh, to those who have lost, Lord. We pray, Jesus, that you would reign and your kingdom would come. We ask, Father, that you would give wisdom and direction and health and safety to our, our frontline workers, our essential workers, those dealing with people every day. We thank you for the health that we have enjoyed here in Dryden. We pray, Lord, for your hand to bring, uh, bring about the end to, of this pandemic. Jesus, we pray that we would have hearts open to what you would say to us during this time. We pray for a harvest, Lord, for those that would come because they are hungry and thirsty for the truth. And just as we have explored your word and these questions and the truthfulness of our Christian faith, I pray that you would open the hearts of those that are hungry and thirsty to receive from you. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone watching this right now, if you've never made a confession of faith and you want to come to Jesus today and begin a relationship with him, it's as simple as saying, Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I lay, I lay down the, the brokenness and, and the ways I've tried to live my life apart from you. And I believe you died on the cross for my sins. You rose again, Lord, to give me new life. And I just confess that I have sinned and I, I give you my heart, Lord. Would you come and dwell within me? and change me. I want to follow you. And if that's you today and you've prayed that prayer, you are now part of the family of God. Jesus forgives you. Uh, the cross is powerful uh, to cleanse us from our sins. And God wants to come and uh, make things right with you, give you a clean slate, and start a fresh work in your life. Lord, we thank you that you are doing that work. And if that's you and you've prayed that this morning, we'd love for you to come and, and connect with us more and grow as a disciple, be part of our church family. Jesus, we, uh, but we look to you. We look to you, Lord, and we pray we give you this week. We pray you'd be with each one as they go about their work, go about their family lives. Again, we pray for wisdom and grace for our doctors, for our uh, healthcare workers, for our frontline workers, for our politicians and governmental leaders and civic leaders, Lord as they seek to uh, navigate this whole situation. Jesus, we give you the glory. This doesn't uh, surprise you. This is not bigger than you. Lord, we pray you'd help us as your church and your people to live out your grace and truth during this time. 
and with the words you taught us. We pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
Friends, we've come to the end of our service and our time together. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoy this service, you've been enjoying this format, please leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. Like it. Share the video. We love seeing your comments and your feedback and your prayer requests. It helps us do this better and better each week as we've been learning. I want to give a, a real thank you again to our scripture readers, to, to Steve and Kelly and Tanner and the worship team. To Brian uh, Calloward, our youth pastor Brian, he spends a lot of hours editing this together and getting things ready and making it work. So thank you guys for all that you give and thank you for joining us. I'd like to send you off with the benediction before you go. The children of God who are loved and forgiven by our Lord Jesus Christ, may you extend grace and hope to those that are searching for the truth. May you be grounded in your faith as you face the tough questions in our society and in our world. And may you cling to the goodness and grace of God who loves us and gave himself for us that we could be reconciled and reunited with him. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen, guys. Love you. We'll see you next week. Have a great one. Bye-bye.